Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am Janice Leibovitz. You are my People of the Book, and today there is quite a special interview that you will be listening to throughout the show. So you won't be hearing anything from me. But um, you'll be hearing an interview that I was really, really privileged to do last week with best-selling international author Lisa Jewell. And for those of you who read contemporary fiction and currently um, psychological thrillers, she will be no stranger to you. She is a best-selling author. She is published by um, Penguin Random House South Africa in this country. And um, she rose to fame and fortune starting off in 1999, quite some time ago, with the book Ralph's Party, which was uh, an instant bestseller. And she has managed to produce a bestseller almost every year since then, which is quite an achievement. And if you are a writer, you'll know that that is something really incredible to achieve a bestselling book, a bestselling novel almost every year is really something quite amazing to attain. And she's managed to do that. She's written almost, uh, I think, over 20 books. You'll hear about it in the interview. And um, she's translated into something like 20 languages. She's really amazing. She's, as I say, best-selling. And um, last week, I was really privileged to interview her. She was being put up in a local hotel in the UK while she was doing a virtual um, American tour. She usually tours the States at this time of year, and obviously this year she's unable to do that, but they wanted her to do a virtual tour. They volunteered to put her up in a hotel so that she would still be able to do some sort of tour, and you'll be able to hear about how they managed to achieve that. So um, I'm just going to read you a little ad. And after that, for the rest of the show, you'll be listening to an interview that I did with Lisa Jewell. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. This is Janice Leibovitz. You are my people of the book. And today I am absolutely thrilled and excited to be chatting to international best-selling author, Lisa Jewell. Lisa, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely wonderful to be here. Welcome to Johannesburg, South Africa, virtually. Oh, I wish. I wish it wasn't (laughs) virtual. I wish it was real, but there you go. (laughs) And at the moment, as I'm speaking to Lisa, she is taking up residence in a hotel in the UK. Well, she lives in the UK, but she's currently doing a virtual tour of the States. And explain to us how this all came about. Um, Well, this came about because normally at this time of year, I would be in America doing my huge coast-to-coast book tour, which I thought, well, that's not going to happen this year. And then my American publishers asked me if I would consider doing a virtual book tour from home. 
going to be horrific because they're all going to be evening events, which means they'll be like late night events for me. And I'm not a late night person. Um, so I sort of basically said, I don't think I can do that because I'm going to get absolutely exhausted. Um, at which point they said, how about if we put you up in a hotel and then take you away from your domestic setup? You wouldn't have to wake up in the mornings and, you know, you could just lounge around in bed and get room service breakfast. Um, so I said, yes, that. That'll do. <laughs> that was very nice. Thank you. So yeah, so I'm 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 calling this my virtual tour HQ. So this is where it's all happening from. It's all very strange, um, but it, it's working. Like I'm getting lions. So I mean, it's, it's, it's actually as strange as it sounds. It's actually quite a clever concept, and I mean. You know, everywhere we've, we've all had to come up with different ways of doing things and rethinking everything. And, and it, it actually is, it's, it's different and it's, it's very clever, actually. I'm, I'm quite impressed. It's a solution. It's a solution, you know, and that's, as you say, that's what we're having to do at the moment is find solutions to problems we never knew we were going to have. So. Absolutely. I mean, who would have thought? And, uh, that's one way of doing it. And, and you're, yeah. you're crossing the states. I mean, from, from yesterday until I think Friday, you're doing this, aren't you? And my you, last event's on Saturday night. Yeah. Uh, and you're, you're, you're doing it, um, really cross country. Uh, much, much easier doing it this way, but strangely, I still feel as lonely as I do when I'm on an American tour in real life. Cut <laughs> off from reality. Um, but yes, it's much less exhausting without all the traveling from, uh, state to state. Very strange, very different. And as you say, you can still pop home and, and um, say hi to everyone. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I popped home last night to walk the dog. So for those of you who don't know, Lisa's current book, is Invisible Girl. It is absolutely brilliant. I read it in two days. I would have read it in less, but, um, you know, I had to feed family. I had to sleep, you know, life and stuff got in the way. Um, but it all started off back in um, 1999, actually, with a book called Ralph's Party, Back in the day, thereafter, I mean, that, that actually was, it was, you were the best-selling debut author of the year, I think, back then. Yes, yeah, against all the odds, you know, a debut novel is, uh, you know, you throw it out into the universe and you hope for the very best. And it's so rare that a debut novel does what all the, every, the publishers want it to do. Um, but yeah, so Ralph's Party it came out in May 1999 and went straight into the top ten at number three, I think. Um, and was really massive at the time. I was interviewed by all the broadsheets. I was on the BBC. Um, yeah, it was just, it was a phenomenon for simple, for whatever reason. Um, it just really took off and blew up in the most incredible, imaginable way for a, for a debut novelist. Um, and yeah, had you, had you actually, you hadn't originally planned to go into, to writing and, and to being an author because you started off in fashion. Uh, yes, yeah, so, but then I hadn't planned to go into fashion either. So I was kind of, <laughs> but that was, that was the trajectory my life was on was just sort of lurching from one thing to another without having a clue where I was headed or what I wanted to actually be. I mean, in fact, by the time I started writing Rouse Party, I had left the fashion industry and I was working as a PA to the marketing director of a shirt making company. Um, and I kind of thought, you know, my mum's a secretary, both my sisters were secretaries. I thought, well, I, I shall just be a secretary, secretary too then. Um, and, but I always had in the back of my mind that one day I would like to write a book, but I was in my twenties. I had had virtually no life experience. 
Um, and at that point, it was there just weren't young women weren't writing books in the mid 90s. It just hadn't happened yet. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll probably do it when I'm about 50. I'll, I'll write a novel when I'm about 50. And in the meantime, I'm just going to be a secretary. Um, but then I had this life changing conversation with a friend um, who basically made me a bet to start writing a book. She, I think she could tell that if I did it, it might be good. Um, so to get me to do it, she said she'd take me out for dinner to my favorite restaurant if I started a book. So I did. And she took me out for dinner to my favorite restaurant. And those were the first three chapters of Ralph's Party. Um, so there's a much longer story, obviously, behind this, <laughs> you know, the, the journey from a conversation with a friend to it being in the top three. Um, but yes, yeah, so I ended up being a writer, really, by absolute fl- fluke and chance. Um, and, and here you are. And I mean, not to give your age away and, and I mean, I'm not giving your age away, but we are actually the same age. Um, a fine, fine age. Are. A fine, fine age. We're we're yeah. just past fifty, and and I mean we we've we've done well. We've aged well. Yeah. And um, sixteen books later. Eighteen. <laughs> eighteen. Eight, well, eighteen, including Ralph's party. Yes. So okay. So first. so, I mean, I mean, I mean I'm going to read this off. Over two million copies sold across the English-speaking world. I mean that that's that's I think amazing. It's doubled that. I think it's doubled that since then. Oh, well, then you need to update your website. I need to update it. Yes. Oh, is that from my website? Yes. That was from your website, and also translated into sixteen languages. Are there more? I would now? imagine it, these days it's closer to twenty-five, thirty. Good grief! That's a lot. That that's a lot. So yes, and in fact, I just got Janice my first Hebrew translation deal. Oh wow! Yes, just about two That's months amazing. ago. Amazing! Oh, about amazing! Two months ago, I got my first yeah foreign translation Hebrew finally twenty years. <laughs> okay, so so there was you thinking maybe you write your first novel at around fifty, and yeah. look where you are today. And instead, I'm publicising my eighteenth novel <laughs> in a in London him. hotel room um, at but, the age of fifty. Yeah. <laughs> But you wrote those first few novels, um, I mean, quite a few novels. You, you started off writing very successfully. I mean, you know, they, they were all bestsellers. And you were writing women's fiction. I mean, I, I, I hate the other term that is, but you were writing, it was contemporary fiction. It was, it was, it appealed to women. And, yes. um, and they were all very successful. And after this break, we're going to chat about what came after that. We're going to take a break right now. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. And we're back. And for those of you who have just tuned in, I am chatting to international best-selling author Lisa Jewell. And Lisa has had a really long-term successful career writing incredible books. Her latest book, for those who don't know, is Invisible Girl. And I have to thank um, Penguin Random House South Africa, who sent me my copy and which I absolutely devoured in two days. Would have been less, but, you know, life, have to eat, have to sleep, you know, breathe a little bit. And um, it's outstanding. Go and get it. It's available, readily available in stores. And um, that's Invisible Girl. So, Lisa, before the break, we were chatting about your your first books that you came out with, all bestsellers, starting with Ralph's Party. And, I mean, I'm not going to name them all. I'm not going to – I mean, you were writing a book basically every year, every other year. And 
all women's fiction, all sold really well up until about 2010. And it got to, um, was it the truth about Melody Brown or after the party, I think around then. And all of a sudden there was a genre change. Actually say it was all of a sudden. Um, I mean, maybe you picked up on it as a reader that way. Maybe it felt quite sudden to you. Certainly as a writer, I never felt like I woke up one day and thought, that's it. I've had enough of writing relationship novels um, or the, the unmentionable genre expression. Um, I want to write psychological thrillers. For for me, it felt much more gradual because I was always sort of striking this balance between writing what I really wanted to write. And I love exploring dark themes. I absolutely love it. Um, And And you do it really, really well. Thank you so much. That's very that's a relief to know. Uh, So you're balancing that desire that I had to really go into dark areas with not wanting to lose my readership who knew me as a writer of feel good romantic comedies. So I kind of blurred the boundaries a little bit with some novels in the middle of so I wrote all these wonderful upbeat quirky love stories set in London blah blah um, romantic comedies Um, and then I sort of switched the emphasis from relationships onto family relationships so I wrote a batch of books in the middle that were kind of dark family dramas mainly based around themes Um, So I wrote a book about um, the children of an anonymous sperm donor finding each other called The Making of Us. I wrote a book about a mother who suffers from obsessive compulsive hoarding disorder in the house we grew up in. I even wrote um, a dual time frame historical novel called Before I Met You, which was set between uh, 1919 and 1996. So I sort of pushed a little bit with each one. Um, and it wasn't until, and they, they, the truth about Melody Brown was the first book I wrote that didn't have any romantic, um, relationship, relationship in it at all. So that was a turning point, probably from my reader's point of view. It's like, hey, where's the love story? Um, but it wasn't until, I think you're right, it was about 2010 or thereabouts, uh, when I wrote it the third wife, which I had imagined was going to be another family drama about a man who clearly from the title has been married three times. Um, and it was going to be about the impact that his choices had on the wives he left behind, the families he left behind, the dynamics that existed in that multi, um, that, that family spread over three households and what have you. Um, and then I got halfway into it and suddenly realized I was bored. I suddenly realized that I didn't want to write just about this man and his life and his children and his wives. I killed his third wife. I wrote a prologue. I stuck a chapter right at the beginning of the book where his third wife um, gets killed by a night bus on Charing Cross Road. And we don't know, the reader doesn't know if she was pushed or if she fell. Uh, so that was a really big turning point for me. And that was quite um, scary, um, delivering that novel to my publishers. So I killed someone and then I had to explain who'd killed them and why they'd done it. Um, and I got, yeah, got really positive reaction from my publishers, um, and from my readers. So therefore with the next one, I thought, oh, look, it appears I'm allowed to kill people. And yeah, so I've gone from, from, yeah, like like a really interesting journey, but in increments very gradually and very organically. And I think a turning point for me when I knew I'd gone from the dreaded, I'm going to say the word now, Janice, chiclet writer. I knew I'd left that behind for good when I, 
my friend said you've got to go on Twitter. Ian Rankins just tweeted about you. Um, so yeah, so I went onto Twitter and he just read the family upstairs and said it was amazing. And I thought, okay, I'm in the boys club now. I'm finally, <laughs> I'm finally, I think, shed that chick lit, um, connotation with my name. So yeah, it's been an interesting journey. Yes, you have arrived. <laughs> I have arrived. I mean, well, the thing is, what, what I've done, which I'm so pleased and relieved about, is I've arrived, but I've kept people with me. I've kept you with me, Janice. You, you know. have definitely kept me with me. And I think you, you are accumulating more and more along the way, without a doubt. Correct. Correct. That's exactly what I've done. It's lovely. And it's a really nice feeling to know that I've managed to uh, maintain my original readership. But as you say, accumulate new readers along the way who are all as as loyal and enthusiastic um, and loving as, uh, as the readers who've been with me from the start. And, and as dark, so I'm not sure if that's a good thing or not. Because <laughs> we yeah. clearly all love, love the dark side a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I'll ask the question, which I know all authors get asked by non-authors or and by people who, who read and probably don't write. But I know that that dreaded question, where do you get the ideas from, especially these dark ideas, because there is a lot yeah. of dark that lurks in, in these books that, you, that you've been yeah. writing. So, yeah, so with the, with the relationship novels, um, it was very much I would want to write about two people. And, and so, so that was just simple. It's like, which two people do I want to write about this time? Then with the family novels, like I mentioned just now, it was more of a what theme do I want to apply to this family situation Um, but with these dark novels it's gone very granular really in the way that I find things I want to write about there's no big pictures anymore it just starts off with these tiny tiny little flickers of things that sort of lurk under under the surface of my consciousness Um, and and because I'm so old and experienced now I've learned to really recognize so that when the, when the egg becomes fertilized, um, when the, when the idea comes, obviously as a writer or as any human being, your brain is constantly flickering with ideas. But I now recognize when the tiny thing flicks a switch and I know that that's the one. And I'm not one of these writers who has many, many, many ideas and books full of ideas. I have one a year. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah, I have one a year. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's and it's consistent. It's it's really, really consistent. Yes, yes. Um, and thank goodness that little that little idea does arrive every year. And sometimes it arrives a year before I'm about to start writing the next book. Sometimes it arrives two weeks before I'm about to start writing the next book. But it always comes. Thank um, goodness it so, arrives. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but so with Invisible Girl, the the the, the 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 fertilized egg moment, actually that's a horrible that's a horrible analogy. I'm not going to use that anymore. <laughs> Was um, just seeing this guy on a snowy January day in London walking through hordes of school children who were all throwing snowballs at each other and all their sort of heel dragging yummy mummies trailing behind them, blocking up the pavement, and he just wanted to get to a from A to B, and he looked heavy set. He looked disappointed. He looked angry, and I just saw. I just saw. Wow, I wonder what it feels like to be him. What must it feel like to be that guy who clearly takes no pleasure in anything and finds life really um, problematic um, and probably really disappointing? Um, and that's what I wanted to write about. And in fact, the working title for the novel was Creep. 
So Invisible Girl came quite late in the day as the title. It was creep, because that's what I was writing about. Um, so I created this character called Owen Pick, who's 33 years old, and he's a virgin. Um, and he's not happy that he's a virgin, clearly. Um, and he's found himself living in his aunt's spare bedroom um, in her big flat in Hampstead in North London. And his aunt hates him. And she keeps all the doors locked in all the rooms in the flat so he can't go into them. Um, and he sleeps on a lumpy single bed. And we, um, so when we first meet the character of Owen Pick, he's just been suspended from his job as a college lecturer because two girls uh, in his class have complained about his behaviour at the Christmas disco. Um, so that was, that was the starting point. So everything else in the book, and you've read it, so you know how multi-layered it is and how many other things are going on. They all came subsequently to that. The first thing I wanted to write about was Owen Pick walking through the snow, feeling miserable, and then see what happens from there. So that's where and, I get my ideas from. As you say, there, there's the layers and there's that, 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 there's that level of suggestion. You know, as you say, he was, he was laid off from his job because of, of charges laid against him from, from two of his students at a Christmas party. But um, I, I did kind of always wonder, and it does come out in the book, and, and you are left to wonder, um, were those conjured up by them? Was it something that was created by them? Did it actually happen? Yeah. Yes, and this is the thing, because Owen Pick is creepy. So something that an uncreepy man did in the same situation would not be perceived as threatening in the way that it is when Owen does it. And that's exactly what, thank you, you've actually just pinpointed exactly what it was that I was trying to do with Owen. I was trying to make him behave like a normal man. So he walks home from the tube station at night, but... Because he's got a creepy aura about him, the teenage girl walking a few paces in front of him feels threatened by him because of his aura, not because of anything he's done, not because of his behaviour necessarily, but because he is Owen Pick. And that's exactly what I wanted to write about. So as a reader, you don't know because you don't know how you would feel if you were dancing with Owen Pick at the Christmas disco and he was being a bit jolly. Um, so that's exactly what it was. Um, and yeah, it was really, really interesting thing to write about because we've all met that guy, haven't we? The one that just makes you feel a bit like, ooh, makes you feel a bit uncomfortable. You just want to sort of like keep away. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that that guy's a bad person or has any right. bad intentions. It's just right. unfortunate. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. In um, Invisible Girl, your actual Invisible Girl, your main protagonist, is a teenager by the name of Sapphire Maddox. And Sapphire is, she's quite an enigma in in herself. And um, we both have teenagers and they they have quite, they, they live in their own world. They, they live in a very different world to the rest of us. <laughs> but, but Sapphire lives in a very different world from the rest of us. She, she comes from, from a world of where she's abused. She lives with, with a, a, is it a cousin or an uncle? I don't quite recall. A very young uncle. Yeah. A very young uncle who, who seems quite lovely, I have to say. I fell a little bit in love with him. He was yes. just 
oh, he was lovely. He really was. (laughs) And, um, I know that you have, you have a very deep love of animals and Sapphire develops quite an affinity to a feral, a feral fox. Um, and there's another character in the book who also has a relationship with that same animal. And that quite fascinated me. Yeah. Um, that was a, that was quite unexpected, the fox. Um, so I wrote a scene where there, there were two characters I knew they had to meet up and it was Sapphire and her therapist. So Sapphire's had a traumatic experience as a child and has had therapy with one of my characters called Rowan Thors, who's a child psychologist. And I wanted her to meet Rowan's son. Um, and I hadn't quite worked out how they were going to meet up. And then I had her outside Rowan's house because she's slightly stalking Rowan um, in the wake of their, their therapy sessions ending. And so I have Sapphire peering through a gap in, in a fence uh, into an urban wasteland um, and seeing um, Rowan's son sitting in this urban wasteland, smoking weed and leaving food out for this fox. And I hadn't expected the fox to happen. I just pictured the scene in my mind and I suddenly saw out of the dark a pair of amber eyes and this fox come towards this boy and the boy take some treats out of his pocket and leave them on the ground for the fox and the fox to come and get them. And from the minute that scene arrived, I just thought, I need to know more about this fox. This fox needs to be a character in the book. Um, and yeah, and in fact, the, the the artwork on the on the British copy, which is the one that you you read, has got the fox graphics all over it, which clearly shows what a very important character the fox was. Um, yeah, and it's, I guess you know, I live in central London. I live just up the road from where this novel is set, and they there there is just something so unsettling about urban foxes. They're just they they are you know in this world where you've either got your domestic pets. Um, or birds and nothing in between. They're the in-between. They're this little taste of the wild and they live amongst us and they're there. And while we're sleeping, they're living their lives and going through the bins and, and doing their foxy thing. So yeah, it was really, really they, they, actually, they, they, they make, they make quite an awful noise actually. I mean, I my, remember my mother, lying in bed. I remember lying in bed one night about 30 it years ago. It sounds like a baby crying. I thought it was a woman screaming. And it went on and on and on. And I was thinking, should I call the police? I don't know what to do. I was alone. It's awful. It's awful. My mother lives in, in Finchley and, um, they have, they have, you know, woods and, and parks and, and they've got beautiful gardens in the, in the complex where she lives. And at one time, I think the fox is actually gone now, but they did have a fox that used to lurk around there at night. And when I used to, I, I, well, I haven't visited there obviously in quite a few months, but it hasn't been there for a while, but I remember hearing it at night and thinking, there's, there's a baby that there, someone's yeah. left a baby in, in the woods, in the, in the, yeah. I used to, did you hear the baby crying in the night? And she used to say, yeah. it's the, and they were all quite used to it, but I wasn't. Oh no, it's really unsettling when you're not expecting Very. it. It's really unnerving. It is, it is a very unnerving sound. That's the perfect word for it. It's a very unnerving sound. Yes. Which is why it was nice to write about a 
an, oh, an almost semi-tame fox. Yes, a, a fox that had an affinity towards Josh and and Sapphire, not not Correct. towards anyone else probably, yes. but towards yeah. them. He sensed the, the well, I'm calling it a he. It sensed something in them, yes, particularly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um. So. Rowan, the therapist, and his family have actually moved. They don't live in this area, in this, this very um, upmarket area of London. They're actually only living there temporarily opposite um, Owen Peck, and um, they've only moved there temporarily because their house is actually being renovated. Um, but they're not actually happy living there, and yeah. that's, that's something that happened to you, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So when, when I realised I wanted to write about Owen Pick, um, it just uh, it was immediately clear to me that I knew exactly where I should set his story because, you know, I wanted him to create this feeling of discomfort with the reader. Um, and yeah, so I spent eight months living in Hampstead in North London, which is one of the nicest areas in London. And I, I you know, I've walked the dog there a lot over the years, and I've always imagined, dreamed of living in one of these houses. Um, when the opportunity arose, I just snapped it up. So um, we moved into this flat, um, this grand apartment in a grand house on a grand avenue. And I thought I was going to love it. And I hated it. I felt uncomfortable there on so many levels. Um, it was just quiet. There were these trees that blew in the wind every night that threw shadows across the across the windows that was just really unsettling the neighbors were unfriendly and weird you never saw people um it was just i don't know there was just something really strange in the atmosphere um and like the character in the book kate i was googling ley lines to see if see if this house lay on some sort of weird i don't even know what a ley line is but i thought why do i not like it here <laughs> um and i so i i just used that that was perfect perfect setting for a book that i wanted to be unsettling on so many levels so i put kate and her family in exactly the same apartment on a fictionalized <laughs> version of the same street um and had her feeling the same way but just to ramp up the tension for kate i also um, in the story, there is a series of sex attacks going on in the very local area, just to ramp up the tension a bit. So, um, which wasn't happening when I was living in Hampstead, but uh, oh, good, yeah. yes, good, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, it's just—I um, mean, ley lines aside, I think it's just that feeling of you—you you aren't at home. You've got that feeling of of displacement. Yeah, and yes, that's you, exactly right. Well, displacement, yes. Yes. And, 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 you know, you can feel you can go on holiday to a nice hotel and that's a nice sort of displacement because it's it, it, it's good for the soul. I think to take yourself out of your your comfortable place and do something different and be somewhere different. But when it's for a prolonged amount of time, it doesn't get any better. It just gets worse and worse and worse. That sense that you're not in the right place. You're not where you belong and you just want to go back to where you belong. Um, yeah, so displacement is absolutely the right word. And I think for Kate, it was that feeling that things were just spiralling downwards. Things were out of control and they had no sign of, of improving. Nothing was getting better. She didn't know where to turn, who to turn to. Her husband yeah. seemed to be very distant and 
it was just she just had this this unnerved feeling all the time yes and that was the thing when i was in my flat in Hampstead, i knew that the minute i went back to my house i would just like go back onto the ground floor back to normal every but kate um as we realized fairly early on in the book is going through a very very kind of damped down marital crisis because it's alluded to earlier in the book and you don't find out until later in the book she did something that she feels was unconscionable um the year before in in her marriage because she suspected her husband was having an affair and did something really bad um and therefore has been um her husband's been occupying the moral high ground for a year when we first meet Kate um and there's nothing like that when you know that you've lost the moral high ground um and her husband Rowan has not <laughs> not tried to save her from that feeling he's made it very clear every day of every month that he has a moral high ground and that she does not deserve to feel a certain level of of happiness contentment um yeah he 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 doesn't let her feel relaxed in the marriage she knows that she just puts one foot wrong and it's all over so it's just so brittle when we first meet um Kate and Rowan as a married couple um and which means that when she starts feeling that there are things going wrong again in the marriage things she can't quite put her finger on she can't go there she just has to let it happen because if she's wrong and she presses the wrong button the marriage is going to implode right. so she's in this really precarious position when we first meet her um so yes it's all sort of shoved under the carpet for quite a long time and then there's there's um Owen as as we've spoken about earlier and Tell me about, about that, that interesting research you must have done about what are termed as incels. That oh, was oh, very oh, interesting. Disturbing. But, really um, disturbing. Really I disturbing. Knew about, I already knew your, about your incels. Search, your search history on, on your, your computer must have, must have yes. been. Any writer's search history is going to be very, very un, unnerving, I think. Um, yeah, for, for the incel thing, and for, and for listeners who don't know what incel is, it's short for involuntary celibate. Involuntary celibate. So it's a community of men who exist online in forums discussing how angry they are that no women want to sleep with them, basically in a nutshell. Um, and it gets very. I have not been into one of these forums, but I have read uh, a, a fascinating um, article called "The Rage of the Incels." So if anybody wants to know more about it, read "The Rage of the Incels." It was written by a woman who went undercover into these forums and came back reporting what she'd seen in there. And it's absolutely vomit-inducing. Um, these are not men who think that they're unlucky in love. These are men who are furious and think that society is stacked against them and it's everybody else's fault. And that if society changed, then they would be able to find women to sleep with them. Um, and they're very cross with men who sleep with women. They're very cross with women who won't sleep with them. Um, they're very cross with the world um, and, they, you know, it can become quite extreme. There are extremists within this um, community. And there, there's um, there's a whole, that whole rape culture yes. that, that goes with it as well. well. Discuss, yes, I didn't want to go too dark and deep into it. But yes, there is a lot of talk about how women who won't sleep with them should just be raped, basically. Um, and men from these communities have gone out into the into the world and and performed acts of terrorism in the name of their cause. They see it as a cause. Uh, they yeah, there have been like multiple shootings in America by by men who who identify as incels. 
Um, so it was, I never actually thought I was going to write about the incel community. It's something I'm fascinated with because, like yourself, I love anything dark and, and weird um, and, and violent. <laughs> um, but, so I hadn't intended to write a book about this, but because of Owen's trajectory, it just seemed the perfect moment, the perfect thing to introduce him to. Because that was always what I wanted to do with Owen. I always wanted to make a series of bad things happen to him and see how he reacted and see how far I could push him. Going back to that guy I'd seen walking down the hill in the snow, getting terribly cross about the snowballs. Um, and so shortly after he loses his job and is um, clearly feeling very bitter about the fact that he's lost his job due to what he sees as um, lies, um, I introduce, he, he finds himself in an incel forum just by chance and yeah I can't say much more than that no no don't we don't want any we um, don't want any spoilers but uh, but, yes. but poor Owen is um I mean and and um for for you when you read the book you will come to refer to him as poor Owen because poor he Owen. is a poor misunderstood soul and yes. um yes. I, I yeah that is the, the best way I can find to describe him really yes yeah, he's had he's had a really bad, you know. I I I describe him as, as a, a little bit as as a child that he was this beautiful child, and his mum took him to a modelling agency um to have his pictures taken to see if they could use him as a child model. But he was too uncomfortable in front of the camera, so his beauty didn't um glow in front of. It. So from a really really young age, he's just had this awkwardness about him, and then a series of horrible things happened to him as a young person. Um, which I, again, I won't, I won't go into too much detail. Um, and he's just treading water. He's just trying his hardest and nobody gets him. No, even his aunt who he's lived with since he was 18 years old doesn't get him and views him through this slightly sort of twisted lens of, of, of distrust and, and, and distaste as well. Um, so yeah, even the people closest to him don't know what to make of him but as as a reader you're obviously you're seeing the world from his point of view which is why you can think poor Owen because you know what it's like to be him rather than just perceive him we're going to take a break and then we will be right back with Lisa jo- I love it when you read to me. this is people of the book with Janice Leibovitz I'm back and I'm chatting to my guest, international best-selling author, Lisa Jewell. And her latest book is currently available. It's called Invisible Girl. It's been released by Penguin Random House South Africa. And do yourself a favor, go and get it, read it, love it, thank me later. Lisa, we were talking about one of your characters in the book. We've been talking about Owen, who is quite a sad loner. And we've been talking about um, Sapphire Maddox, who is the invisible girl of the title. And we've spoken also about Sapphire's therapist, Rowan, and his wife, Kate, and the pressure she's under in her marriage. Would you say that an underlying theme here is, is bullying? Yeah, again, I, I don't set out um, write it when I write a book any with a theme in mind. I set out with people in mind and scenarios in mind 
and just see where those go. So I always find it quite disarming when a reader comes to me with their perception of a theme that I might have been exploring around the book, because I rarely am exploring themes. I'm exploring people and their reactions to certain things that happen to them. Um, but yeah, I guess, yeah, I mean, that, that certainly within the Kate and Roman, it's, and it's really low key and subtle. It's not in your face bullying at all. It's just tiny things like that. He, he, he'll come, he'll come, they're supposed to be going out for dinner at eight o'clock and he won't come home until eight 40. So it's not late, late, hasn't ruined their night, but it's just enough for her to be in a position where she should be able to complain about it and say, for God's sake, you're supposed to be home at eight o'clock, but she can't because he's keeping her firmly in her place as the one at the bottom of the moral high ground. So it's just, there are tiny little moments of it rather than it being a big picture, I think. Um, and yeah, subtle, subtle control. I think, yeah, I think um, these days that that's um, one of, the terms they use that's that's emotional abuse in a marriage actually yes yes um exactly exactly which is something in the book i'm writing at the moment um i am yeah so i i'm writing about this teenage couple who've got a baby so which is quite an interesting thing to write about actually uh so it's a young teenage couple with a baby and um they live together at her mother's house and behind the closed door of the bedroom, the, the boyfriend, and they're, they're so young, but he's already doing it. He's already imposing control on, on his girlfriend. Um, so yeah, again, having not set out to do that, I didn't think, oh, let's write a novel about coercive control within a teenage relationship. And it, this happens a lot in teenage relationships. Um, it's not just married couples or people who've been together, um, as adults. Um, I found myself exploring that and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's so chilling. It's so chilling. And I've been in a marriage like that. I got married at 21 to a man who did that to me for five years, who kept me locked up at home and didn't let me see my friends or family and didn't give me a door key. And, um, yeah, we didn't have a phone in the house and he told me what to wear and what to say and what we were going to eat and all of that. So I've been there and yeah, so I know it, um, and so it is something I think that feeds into my writing on a fairly regular basis without me ever setting out to do it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot of authors say the characters lead them. So yes. I, and I, oh, absolutely. I, no, I'm no always amazed by that. that. Yeah, character led, character led. And it's, I suppose it's slightly unusual in the, in the crime and thriller genre. Um, obviously much more so in relationship and family dramas that it would be character led. But it's it's unusual in the genre that I write in now. And I think that's why I get a lot of surprised messages on social media from people who maybe haven't read a book in the genre before that was quite so character led and put character at the top of the agenda. Um, so, yes, that's something that I think I brought with me from writing relationship novels, which is um, which has been a really, really important part of building myself as a crime writer. What books do you like to read when when you have some downtime and when you're relaxing? What do you like to read? I like reading books like mine. I totally read in my genre. I read my contemporaries. I read the people who, yeah, who write the similar sorts of books to me. I love Claire McIntosh. I love Ruth Ware. I love Tammy Cohen. 
I love Amanda Jennings. I love Sabine Durant. I love Julie Myerson. I love there were women. There must be some men in there. <laughs> yeah, I love domestic noir. I love domestic noir. And I just, that's what I read. So yeah, I'm quite boring really. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. No, because those are, those are all uh, great recommendations, I have to say, because uh, I enjoy a lot of those as well. So good. it's, it's good to know that that's, um, an author like you, who who a lot of us enjoy, is reading all of those who yes. we should be enjoying as well. So, so I asked Penguin Random House, and um, I asked Liz Chetty, who is um, the rep who I deal with at Penguin Random House, to give us some stats on your books here. So to see what what kind of sales and and who's reading them, what what you know how they sell, and um, he let me know that they sold what they sell into the trade and basically what they've sold of Invisible Girl is up a hundred percent on what they sold of Family Upstairs. Wow. I, I yeah. didn't know that. I did know I did know that there was a massive push going on behind the scenes. Um so, we are going to break South Africa if it kills us. So, yes, there is huge, huge growth in in the Lisa Jewel following in South Africa. Um, It's it's almost, uh, yeah, basically almost 100% growth from from previous novels. So that's what they've sold into the trade. And um, I think it's it's only going to improve every time. I mean, you are so popular. I know amongst the people I know who read... And who read this genre, you are so popular and much loved. And people really anticipate your books coming out. And when I said I was going to be chatting to you, people's mouths just basically dropped. Oh. They, they, they were, people were, were really awed by it. They kind of went, well, how, you know, how are you chatting to her? And I went, I'm, I'm Zoom. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the, truth, the truth is that that you know, I mean, we've we've blamed this virus for so much and it's changed so much, but I think that that we've all become so much more accessible to each other. And yes. we have to say thank you to <laughs> to uh COVID, unfortunately, for, for a lot of things. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's lovely. I can think of very, very few things to be grateful to this virus for. Very few. Um, and it is nice to find the occasional thing that is an improvement on the way things were before. And this, as you say, is definitely one of them. I mean, had you, had you written to me and said, would you like to come to South Africa? <laughs> I think that I have. Yeah. I think that I have actually messaged you before and said, you know, previously when you, you were planning previous tours and I said, well, you know, pop down to Johannesburg and, yeah. um, you know, it just wasn't on the cards. No. But now, look, now we're having a great chat. And unfortunately, the time has come to wrap it up, even though oh. I could uh, carry on chatting for yes. another couple of hours. But Lisa, I cannot thank you enough for giving me your time today. And I really do appreciate it. Thank you. It's been so, so wonderful chatting to you. Yeah, I've loved talking to you as well, Janice. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And 
enjoy the rest of your virtual US tour. Thank you. I think I'm going to go and have a blow dry now. <laughs> go and have a blow dry. Go and have a massage and a facial. And then you can pop home and walk the dog. Exactly. Weirdest US tour ever. <laughs> but enjoy the rest of the day. And it's been wonderful and really, really lovely. Thank you so, so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Have a lovely day.